How's it going, everybody? It is 4.05, Wednesday afternoon, August the 28th, 2019, and it is time for a rather overdue edition of The Homework Path. Uh, this is the show by me. My name is Adam. I'm a father of three, a husband, and a person working a full-time factory job, and somehow, someway, with all of those, you know, all of life's responsibilities, we try to find a way to make competitive magic work. So, uh, as of current, I'm on my way home from a doctor's appointment that we had in Nashville with Esther, so this episode's going to be a little longer than usual. I don't think anybody's going to complain. I'm not sure. I'm, some, I'm sure somebody will find fault with that, but, you know, we don't need those. We don't need that kind of negativity in our life. Uh, Esther is currently sound asleep in the back of the car, but she may or may not wake up. You may hear her talking in the background. Bear that in mind. I have no control over whether or not she stays completely quiet during the entire recording process. And I'd like to take this opportunity before before I go any further to issue an apology to everyone that was expecting an episode last week, including myself. Uh... The, the best way I can put it is life got in the way. My regularly scheduled recording time was usually on Friday mornings, and we just had a whirlwind weekend, and that makes a couple of weeks in a row that we've had a lot of trouble being able to stick to the recording schedule that I tried to set for myself. So starting this week and from now on, I am moving the show recording back into the car Thursday afternoon on the way home with exceptions like today or for events that I'm traveling to where I have more time to do a more in-depth episode about a more complex topic. So what are we talking about this week? Well, for starters, I'm going to touch on this bombshell of an announcement Watsy dropped on us while we were away. And uh, there's, there's a lot to unpack in modern right now. There really is. Format is shaken up in a huge way. But we'll get to that. And then our main topic this week, we're going to be talking about combo decks. I promised y'all I was going to do this last week. So I'm going to do it this week. Uh, We're going to be talking about what it is that makes combo decks good. Why are they as good as they are when they're good? What, you know, what kind of delicate balance is there in in deck building for combo? How How well can combo bleed over into other archetypes, you know? There's all kinds of little bits and pieces of nuance and balance and making sure you got the right number of, you know, win conditions and card selection and enablers to just make the whole deck function right. And it's really important to make sure you get that right. And speaking of enablers, I want to enable you to decorate your playing space at a discount. So head over to our sponsor's website at inkgaming.com, use our promo code CCMTG10, get 10% off your order. enables yourself to get a very well-decorated playing space at, you know, I'd say a fraction of the cost, but at least a a reasonable price and helps us out, you know, helps enable us to keep making this content. And while you're at it, while you're on the web, head over to constructedcriticism.com, check out the content on the network, which will enable you to expand your horizons as Magic players regardless of whether you're here for regular constructed content, for uh, pauper content, for you know our, our magic talk show, the, the you know, 10 Street Hooligans, whatever it is you're here for, we've got something for somebody. We've got something for everybody. So, And then if you like what I'm doing enough that you feel like you want to enable me to keep making it, you can head over to patreon.com slash Homeward Path MTG. We got another new patron this week. Uh, the only name I got was Jason. I, I did not get a last name to share. So thank you, Jason, for your support. Uh, I've, I've sent you your link. I have uh, you know, I, I've sent, sent the message to let you know the channels are open for, for conversation. And I, I appreciate the support. Bottom of my heart. Still the most gratifying email I get anytime it happens is someone says... Hey, good job. Keep up the good work. This is going to help you do it. Thank you so much. Now, with all of that out of the way, let's dive in. So while we were away this week, 
we got our we got the long-awaited band and restricted announcement regarding modern and we got there was there was a little standard tack on and a pretty sizable vintage shift and for the standard you know for for those of you who are not well versed in the changes i honestly don't remember the vintage changes and i'm obviously driving on the interstate right now so it's not a great idea to you know try to pull that up to to digest i don't know enough about vintage to really break those down i i'm not independently wealthy so vintage is just not part of my player portfolio uh, but for standard rampaging ferocidon finally mercifully sees its time on the ban list end about a month before it retires which is kind of a slap in the face we're being real here but you know, it's a welcome tool to add to the red deck thankfully standard is not just outright dead yet you know, there's there's going to be like a two-week period where it's going to feel like a lame duck format as everybody's just stockpiling materials and trying to get ready for Eldraine. I mean, that's what I'm doing right now. But, you know, Rampaging Ferocidon gives aggressively slanted red decks and a deck like John Dino's a massive shot in the arm against the menaces that are scapeshift and vampires. Helps breathe a little bit of diversity into the standard format right before it rotates. Keep it engaging, keep it fun on Arena. I'm here for that. That's awesome. As for Modern, we got two bannings and one unbanning. Uh, most notably, the two bannings were Hogak Arisen Necropolis, Gaon. Faithless Looting, Gaon. One of those two things I'm upset about, and it is not the Hogak. Uh, as someone who, who once piloted Turn 2 Dredge and Extended, it's a little bit too strong. Don't know. You, you've all just played against it for the last month. Don't take my word for it. It's a little bit too strong. <clears throat> so I am not unhappy to see Hogak go. I am sad to see Faithless Looting go because obviously I play Is It Phoenix and Modern. It's the deck that I had the most cards for, so it was an easy transition for me to get into. But I understand. You know, I'm not going to get bitter about it now. That being said, the biggest thing to be bitter about for me is that I went ahead and got Thing in the Ice and I should have waited. Uh, used a little bit of my credit that I had saved up and went ahead and got Thing in the Ice. It's not, not a super big loss, but, you know, losing Faithless Looting was a bit of a blow to, to that plan. Uh, so, you know, the, the obvious losers in that scenario are Hogak, Dredge with Hogak, Mardu Pyromancer, uh, the, the, just basically all the Faithless Looting decks, right? You know, Hollow One, there's a lot of decks that just look kind of questionable that were mainstays of the, the modern format for a while. And losing kind of the premier cantrip of modern, it was the card that allowed all these cute, sexy graveyard interactions to exist together. Do I think all these decks that I that have been hit by this banning are dead? No. I'm in the minority there. I don't think lo all the looting decks are dead because looting got banned. They just have to do some restructuring. For example, Mardu Pyromancer now needs to lean a lot harder on Seasoned Pyromancer and Unearth. Um, Hollow One, that I'm not sure about. Maybe you just max out all your, your draw discard random enablers and your street wraiths and maybe you go higher on collective brutality just to make sure you can get discard outlets in order to fuel your big big dumb explosive plays collective brutality also figures to be a better card going forward because of the unbanning that was just like the perfect bnr announcement for the entirety of the twitterverse because all the things that people have wanted with the exception of splinter twin got addressed hogot got banned Faithless Looting got banned. Stoneforge Mystic got unbanned. That is a big deal. Not necessarily because the card is supremely powerful, but because it ejects a, a, a shot of diversity into the modern format, just because it's a card people like to play with. Just look at Legacy. The, the Legacy Stoneblade players, you know, they can port their deck over now. Is it going to be as good? Oh, my heavens, no. Force of negation is not force of will. 
There is no Brainstorm Ponder Preordain. Is Stoneblade something that people are going to be playing, though? Uh, yeah, definitely. We're at a, and by virtue of that fact, by the by virtue of the fact that we're going to have a, an injection of more fair decks into the modern format, we got some pretty que uh, pretty clear queer. Blah, 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 blah. I I'm a hot take rabbit. Uh, anyway, um, we've got some pretty clear winners and losers as it stands right now, and we're going to start with the decks that lost the most. Obviously, Hogak as a deck is dead. Like, we just, we don't get to do that anymore. It's not a thing anymore. No more turn two eight eights for anybody. Not, not in modern, anyway. Full stop. Like, that's it. No more turn two eight eight trample out of your graveyard that also brings back Avenger Line. This is just a little too strong, and I understand that. That needed to happen. Dredge has to do a little bit of rebuilding. Hollow One has to do a little bit of rebuilding. Mardu Pyromancer has to do a little bit of rebuilding. Is it Phoenix has to do a little bit of rebuilding. So in the short term, all of those decks are losers from this banned and restricted announcement. Losing a card like Faithless Looting that has warped deck construction to a degree, both in terms of the decks that play against it and the decks that play the card itself, there's going to be some, 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 some bumps to work out, if you will. But that's really where the, the losers in this equation stop. If I'm, being, if I'm being perfectly honest, that's really where the losers in this equation stop. The winners, it begins with the fair magic decks in modern. Blue-white control, John, Abzan, you know, collected company variants. All of these decks get a lot better because they are not going to be playing against something that is way more broken than them three, four times a night. You know, most of the things that are way more broken involve Faithless Looting. So most of those decks have to do some restructuring. Having said that, with the, with the banning of Faithless Looting in Hogak, there's a very real possibility that the sneaky Dark Horse winners in this ban list are actually the Graveyard decks. Because while they're losing a cantrip, they're also probably going to gain the advantage of not having as much graveyard hate in sideboards anymore. As the format becomes more diverse, as more decks try to play fair magic, there's not as much of a draw to play a card like Leyline of the Void in the main deck or Surgical Extraction in the main deck. Those cards just aren't as powerful when you don't have something like Faithless Looting enabling these powerful graveyard strategies across the board. It also stands to reason that since they aren't going to be viewed as public enemy number one, they should have an easier time navigating graveyard hate out of even sideboards. There's not going to be, you know, 11 slots devoted to graveyard hate anymore. Another clear winner from this list are the Ancient Stirrings decks, uh, Tron and Hardened Scales, most notably. Tron was one of the early favorites after the London Mulligan went into play, we saw a lot of, I'm not going to say variations on Tron, right? The, it's kind of a formulaic deck. You tap three lands for seven mana and play a big, big, stupid, powerful card. That's, that's Tron. does what it does. And I respect that. Uh, but, you know, Ancient Stirrings becomes the premier cantrip in modern if you're willing to build around its deck building concession. So, between decks like, you know, regular Tron, Eldrazi Tron, Bant, Bant Eldrazi, Hardened Scales, Eldrazi Taxes, like, the, the fair decks that are going to want to use Stoneforge Mystic and the fair decks that are going to want to use Ancient Stirrings, those are the biggest winners, including Abzan, which occupies an interesting slot where it can play both. It can play the Jund role with a lot of the same stuff that Jund likes to do, but then it also gets to play the Stoneforge Mystic package too. So like, there's a lot to get excited about if you're if you're play, a fan of interactive and fair magic in modern. And that's really all I have regarding the state of you know bannings and the the BNR announcement. I'm not shocked that there was no change to Popper for all the flack that everybody 
gives the format because our uh, Astrolab is everywhere and it's you know there's this prohibitively good card. It it's a cantrip. Calm down. It's a cantrip that color fixes. All you got to do is play snow. It's not as bad as you're making it out to be. I realize it's made the value-oriented mid-range decks that are playing like Core Sky Fisher and Glint Hawk a lot stronger. I get it. But wouldn't you rather have those decks be good than have decks like Blue Red, uh, Blue Red Scred, or Scred Delver or... Uh, you know, inside out the tribe combo, the you know, is it blitz? Like all these decks that were playing gush and probe, braining you over the head with how awesome each of their cards is. I think I think that's a trade off I'm willing to make. I'm I'm willing to let white decks have a have a little time in the sun in Pauper. Because I can frankly I cannot think of the last time it happened. So I'm I'm kinda stoked about that if I'm being honest. So let's move on from banned and restricted topic because it's, it's one that we could sit here and do an entire episode on if we really wanted to, but I promised you combo decks. So let's start off with a very, very broad definition of what a combo deck is. A combo deck is, is designed to exploit an interaction and utilize that exploitation to win the game. Well, what does that mean? There's a lot of things. The way I like to kind of generalize it and make it easy to remember, unless you are breaking a fundamental rule of the game, not a heavily implied rule of the game, not like, you know, normal design trope rule of the game, unless you are breaking a fundamental rule of the game, like one of the, the certainties of magic just doesn't apply to your deck, you're not a combo deck. Like, let's, let's, you know, one of, one of my favorite examples to look at when disproving that everything that has a, a big, fast, powerful play in it is a combo. Well, no. Mono Red Aggro during Zendikar, Alara Standard, that was not a combo deck. It even carried over into uh, Scars of Mirrodin Standard, but that was just a whole different ball of wax because of how that format shook out. But Mono Red there for a while could boast sometimes a draw that lets you kill on turn three in standard. Because you would go Goblin Guide on one, play to Geopede on two, fetch, crack, fetch for mountain, float three, cast Devastating Summons, sacrifice all three mountains, make two three threes. With the two red you still have floating, cast Goblin Bushwhacker with Kicker, attack you for 19 and kill you. Like that was a thing you were allowed to do in Mono Red. Is that a combo deck? No. No more than what Naya Blitz was a combo deck when it was in standard during uh, RTR standard. You know, chaining Burning Tree Emissaries into a Bushwhacker of some sort does not make you a combo deck. It makes you an aggro deck with a big splash play. So compare and contrast something like that to, let's say... The blue-red God Pharaoh's gift deck from last year, which was played by several members of the constructed criticism team. What you know? What was it that made that deck work? Well, it was really good in the field they were expecting, and it was really, really fast and powerful. And if it got to execute the way it wanted to, it just killed you. You know, one of the fundamental rules of magic is you only get one combat phase. Well, this combo broke that rule, thanks to Combat Celebrant and Vizier of Many Faces. You got to break that rule. That's a combo. When you get to break a rule of magic in order to kill your opponent on the spot, that's, that's a, a combo. Well... How do we break down the cards that go into these combo decks? Well, first of all, you have the, the win condition, the cards that only really work in your deck because of the fact that you're playing the combo, right? Cards like Combat Celebrant and the God Pharaoh's Gift deck. Cards like 
uh, or cards like Felidar Guardian in the, the Saheeli Cat deck. Or more, I guess most notably, Saheeli Rai in the Felidar, the, the Saheeli Cat deck. Cards like Ulamog, the Ceaseless Hunger in your Team or Marvel deck that like, we'll, we'll get to why, you know, that deck was the way it was here in a minute. But, you know, the, the thing you are planning on doing needs to be breaking a fundamental rule of magic. You know, God Pharaoh's Gift plus Combat Celebrant means I get a bunch of attack phases. Uh, Sahili, Sahili Rive plus Felidar Guardian breaks the rule that says you can only use a Planeswalker's ability once per turn. And you know, doesn't just break it, but like obliterates that rule because you don't just get to use it once per turn, you get to use it infinitely. For two cards. Six total mana if your first blink on the Felidar is not the Sahili. Instead, your land to cast the Sahili. Fun fact. Uh, <sighs> Aetherworks Marvel, you're not supposed to be able to cast 11 drop or 13 drop creatures for 4 mana. That's a fundamental rule of magic you're breaking in half right there. Rally the Ancestors combo. You're not supposed to be able to have an infinitely large life total easily in standard. Even dipping into modern. Storm. Do I even need to talk about how broke Storm is? What does your deck do? It casts a bunch of spells. It draws a bunch of cards. Okay, but how does it win? By casting a bunch of spells that draw a bunch of cards. Devoted Druid Vizier combo. You're only supposed to be able to generate so much mana out of your creatures. That number is not supposed to be arbitrarily large and all green mana. It's just not supposed to happen, but it does. You know, that's that's the beauty of the combo when you do it right. It's not necessarily that it's faster and stronger than everything. Sometimes it feels like it is. It's that whatever you're doing breaks a rule. You know. Cephalid Breakfast is another good example. If you look all the way back to Legacy, Once Upon a Time Extended, you're not supposed to be able to mill your library and then kill your opponent all in one shot. The, the funniest variation of that combo being, you know, when you mill your library, you mill all your bridge from belows. More importantly, you mill your Narcomoebas. Your Narcomoebas come into the battlefield. Uh, and then you sacrifice three of them to cast the Dread Return out of your graveyard. And then your Dread Return revives Mimeoplasm and Legacy. And Mimeoplasm. You copy Lord of Extinction and Murderous Red Cap and just shoot your opponent dead. They just dead. Another good example. The, uh, what's it called? The, the Breach Hulk deck, Once Upon a Time Flash Hulk. You're not supposed to be able to get Protean Hulk's Death Trigger for less than it costs to cast Protean Hulk. And yet here we are, playing cards like Flash until it was banned in Legacy, playing cards like Footsteps of the Gorio or Through the Breach. You know, everything about combo is about breaking the rules in a, in a legitimate way. You're not cheating or anything. You're just breaking the rules by using your cards in a certain way. You're breaking the, the unwritten rules of Magic together. Your lands are only supposed to give you so much mana. Well, Twiddlestorm has something to say about that. You know, but you know, between the, the Lotus Field and then the, the, the various tap-untap mechanics encased within the deck. There's a lot of different things you can break. But the most important thing you're doing is breaking them. Scape Shift. Valakut the Molten Pinnacle is supposed to be kind of a, a, a dinky, slow, grind them out kind of card. Same goes for Field of the Dead. Except both of those cards represent a one-card combo when combined with Scapeshift. 
because you just need to get a bunch of lands out, which you're planning on doing anyway. And then you cast Scape Shift and you go off and kill your opponent. So we were ta we've talked about what makes these decks combo decks, what makes them powerful, what makes them so good. How do we build them? Well, for starters, you've got to pick the right shell to go around your combo. Now, uh, previously I was going to talk about like a combo aggro here. I don't know that I've ever actually seen one. If I'm being honest, I've never actually seen a viable combo aggro deck. That's not to say it can't be done. I just haven't seen it in all my years. I've never seen a like a, an aggro deck that had a combo finish. I've seen an aggro deck that had a big play at the end, like the Devastating Summons Bushwhacker, like the Quest for the Holy Relic in uh, that standard format. You could argue Mythic Conscription was like an aggro combo. It was more combo mid-range, but, you know, whatever. But the thing that the, the, the thing missing from aggro combo that make that would make it viable is like both of those are pretty linear concepts if you're buying all the way in all. So you either have a bad aggro deck meshed with a bad combo deck and you lose a lot. I guess uh, I, I'm not being completely uh, completely truthful when I say that. When I think about it now. The God Pharaoh's Gift deck was basically like an aggro combo deck because between cards like Bowman Courier and Warkite Marauder and you know these these aggressive two one two and three drop creatures, Minister of Inquiries, um, Champion of Wits, Trophy Mage, all of these were cards that could do a like a not a great job attacking and blocking and you know winning a combat race. But they got you to your combo while doing that. Like you just you're just attacking and blocking and putting your opponent under pressure. And the deck wasn't particularly interactive at all. You just did your thing or you did your other thing, which was beaten down with a bunch of mopey creatures. Sometimes you would hard cast your combat celebrant. Ugh. But then eventually you'd find Gate to the Afterlife and you'd get your God Pharaoh's gift and you'd run away and hide with the game and it didn't matter anymore. So that's, you know, the best way I can describe a combo aggro or something like that. That deck was good for one weekend and then basically fell off the map. So forgive me if I want to move on to a different, a different archetype and that's combo mid range and combo mid range is a fairly new inclusion to the, the lexicon, if you will. Because when I cut my teeth on Magic, we had, you know, the combo deck at the time was Heartbeat Harvest. Or uh, Ghost Husk had, like, what felt like a combo finish, but it was just another case of, like, linear or synergy-based aggro. <sighs> but... You look at the, the standard modern format over the last couple of years. You've got decks like Collected Company, you know, Green-White uh, Counters Company, Green-White Project Malira Company, uh, Green-White Company with Bells and Whistles, Abzan Company, Bant Company, whatever, right? That's a mid-range deck. It's a completely defensible mid-range deck. It wins off of a bunch of two-for-ones. But it's also got this like big over-the-top combo finish that kills your opponent, especially now in the pure green-white build with de uh, Devoted Druid and Vizier of Remedies. Gaining infinite mana is kind of a big deal. <laughs> so where do we go from here? How does... Uh, yeah, what, what is it that makes combo mid-range good? It's the fact that the deck is capable of playing this kind of grinders game where you nickel and dime your opponent, you have efficient creatures, you have removal, you have interaction, you have you know little bits and pieces of card selection here and there. And all those things fuel the mid-range part of the game plan really well. And then eventually your opponent leaves the shields down, they don't respect what you're doing, 
and you just drop the combo atom bomb on them. You assemble Voltron and slay them. Um, the, the best example in standard over the last couple of years I can bring up is Sahili Cat, which eventually morphed into the four-color monstrosity that got the card Felidar Guardian banned because it was just far and away the best deck in standard. It was well over half the format, and it wasn't particularly close as to which deck was actually the best. Like, it was a deck that was so dominant and warped standard deck construction so much, the card Dynavolt Tower became the mainstay of the only control deck in the format because you could disrupt the combo with it. Not a great look for, for everybody that wasn't playing Sahili Cat. Like, the other decks that were good were good because they had the ability to break up the combo or disrupt the combo along the way. That's not a, it's not a great look. So, moving from combo mid-range, we talk combo control. And combo control is another interesting one. I cut my teeth pretty early on combo control. And in so doing, I kind of created a little bit of an everlasting nag at the back of my head that makes me want to build it if it's remotely viable. But the thing for combo control is like combo mid-range, you are a functional control deck. You are good at stringing the game out long. You can play a long game pretty well. You have win conditions that don't involve your combo. The combo, by necessity, same with uh, the mid-range decks, typically needs to be fairly small, fairly compact, not take up a lot of room in deck construction. Uh, but when we're talking combo control, one of the biggest advantages to combo control over the other archetypes is interplay between your combo pieces and what your deck does naturally. The first example I can give for that is Upheaval Psychotog. Because Blue-Black Psychotog was already the best deck in standard before they added Upheaval and gave it a combo finish. It just was. When you get to jam the best creature in standard into your control deck and then play Upheaval that synergizes not only with what you want to do with that creature, which is kill your opponent, but also what you want to do as a control deck, which is reset the board in a meaningful way. It gets a little bit too strong. So to break down what the combo was, if you will, uh, Upheaval was four in double blue for a sorcery that says return all permanents to their owner's hands. All of them. Whole board, go back to the hand. And the best creature in standard at the time was Psychotog. It was one a blue and a black for a one-two. You could discard a card to give it plus one, plus one, or exile two cards from your graveyard to give it plus one, plus one. And then your Psychotog decks were playing cards like Circular Logic and Deep Analysis and Mental Note. And, you know, you were really invested in filling your graveyard up so you could make a Tog lethal out of nowhere. Well... When you bounce all the permanents and then float, you know, when you cast a spell that's going to bounce all the permanents, float three mana in response, pick everything up, and then drop that creature onto the board, that game ends right there. Because your opponent doesn't have lands anymore. Whatever lands they had are in their hand. They will get one land and an opportunity to attempt to kill your Psychotog. If they don't kill your Psychotog for one mana, it's going to kill them. You've still got seven cards in your hand, and you've got everything you just discarded to, to hand size, plus everything you put in the graveyard over the course of the game. So Psychotog was, you know, Upheaval Tog was just really, 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 really good. But there's been other examples of combo control over the years. Splinter Twin was a, was a marquee combo control deck. You could argue by the time it got banned, Teamer Marvel was a combo control deck. There were variations on the Jeskai or the, the Sahili Cat deck. The Sahili Cat deck in modern is typically very 
combo control. And that's okay. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's the fact that you've got to be able to play a respectable control game. You've got to be able to win the fairway and then be able to, at the drop of a hat, make your opponent respect this fast, powerful combo that can come down and kill them out of nowhere. The best example in the current standard is Teamer Reclamation. And I, that was the deck I talked about on Riding in Cars this week. You are a perfectly defensible blue-red control deck that gets to play Wilderness Reclamation and Growth Spiral and max out on exp uh, Expansion Explosion. That's what the deck is. It's a blue-red control deck that plays green cards for the purpose of killing your opponent out of nowhere with a giant explosion. Literally. Giant explosion. So, what is it? You know, well, there's, there's another variation of combo left. What is it? Well, that's linear combo. These are combo decks that win by doing what they do and nothing else. If they don't get to do what they do, they don't kill anybody. What makes them different from all these others? Well, these others like to play mostly by the rules and then have the, the combo as either a backup win condition or they have a backup win condition built into the deck. Linear combo is not so lucky. So by virtue of that fact, by the fact that they're not going to be trying to do anything else but assemble their game-breaking, their, their, their broken interaction, they're going to be really, really good at it. Linear combo decks are fast, they are powerful, and if you don't respect them, they are worse than the mono-red deck at testing how your deck is constructed. Take I don't know. Let's look at let's look at modern right now. Let's take Storm. How many people feel like they have a good Storm matchup? Anyone. I, I know everybody thinks they do, but I'm here to tell you a, a really good example. Uh, my, at my modern 1K last year, I was playing Marty Pyromancer. And I put a heavy emphasis on making sure, because you know the main deck was so good against creatures, sideboard was kind of soft to combo control, I made sure that my sideboard plan involved a hefty amount of, of stuff for the combo and control matchups so that I thought I would give myself a chance. I'd have a lot of disruption, uh, a reasonably fast clock if I could get it out and get it going. None of that ended up happening. None of it. Now why? Game one, I just died on turn four. Threw a Thought Seize, threw a, you know, a Pyromancer on the board, threw a, a, you know, a Colagon's Command that killed their Electromancer and made them discard a card. Didn't matter. Still died on turn four. Why? Because Storm. The, the best variation of this deck, the, the most egregious offender, if you will, is Goblin Charbelcher. I, you know, that is just the most egregious offender when it comes to building a combo deck that only does what it does and nothing else. Because if, if Charbelcher does what it does and is allowed to do that, you're dying before you take a turn. They just rip through their deck, gain a ton of mana, play a Charbelcher and kill you, or play and empty the Warrens and kill you the next turn. That's what they do. They just kill you. Before you can do anything about it, before you have a say in the matter, you just die. And especially in eternal formats, there's a place for that. Because there's so much disruption in these formats, you know. Legacy has brain uh, legacy has force of will. Legacy has uh I'm trying to remember what other commonly played disruptive elements there are in Legacy. I don't play Legacy much. And by much, I mean ever. Um, but cards like Force of Will, any amount of counter magic you can squeeze in. Disruption in cards like Thought Season, Inquisition, Hymn to Turok, anything along those lines. Same goes for Modern. Disruption in the form of Thought Seize, Inquisition, Stubborn Denial, Force of Negation. All of these cards exist in Modern. And yet Storm still hasn't been, like, hated all the way out of the format. Why? Because it's broken if it gets the right hand. It doesn't matter what you have. 
So they take the idea of breaking their rules and then doing something with that to its absolute logical extreme. That's what a linear combo deck is about. Your broken interaction is your ticket. That's the only thing you're going to do. Well, getting all of that in place. How do we balance these decks? Well, the advantage in that regard goes to the hybrid variations, the combo mid-range, the combo control. Because by virtue of their secondary game plans, they've already got a little bit of the ability to dig for stuff. You know, uh, Devoted Druid, the, the Devoted Druid Vizier deck has Collected Company. It has Duskwatch Recruiter. Uh, you know, Grixis, the, the Urza deck that wants to assemble Urza, Thopter Foundry, Sword of the Make, and make infinite 1 1 Thopters and gain infinite life. You have War of Invention. You have. Uh, oh, come on. My brain's in a fog. Coffee. The, the sugar from the coffee must be wearing off. Anyway, you got cards like War of Invention, Ancient Stirrings, whatever. Right? In the, the Thopter Depths deck from 2000, I want to say, 9 Extended. Or maybe it was two thousand. It was two thousand eight extended. I think no, it was two thousand nine. Because it was after we got Vampire Hex Mage and before extended stopped being a format. So yeah, it was two thousand nine. So we had Vampire Hex Mage Dark Depths in Modern or in extended. That's a two card combo that puts a twenty twenty indestructible flyer on the table for the entire investment of two total mana. Two mana. Make a 2020. Ew. Ew. Well, what was it that made that deck good? Because, I mean, a 2020, if it's just a creature, you can kill creatures. You can bounce creatures. You can path to exile creatures. That wasn't extended by that. What was it that made that deck good? Well, the secondary combo was Dr. Foundry Sword of the Meat. And that gave you the ability, coupled with all the card draw and disruption you were playing, to just be a good control deck. But they also took it a step further by maxing out on copies of Muddle the Mixture to be able to go through their deck and find every piece of their combo except the land. Because Muddle the Mixture was a three-mana demonic tutor for anything that cost two. Sometimes it would counter a spell that was mostly there as redundant copies of everything. Heartbeat of Spring combo, the first combo deck I ever played. Same basic principle. You had a lot of redundant ways to get to the things you needed to do to break the game open. Weird Harvest could find Drift of Phantasms, which could directly transmute to find either your early harvest to, to you know, cheat on your mana, get a lot of mana, or it could go get one of your two win conditions. Muddle the Mixture could tutor up Weird Harvest in order to set that up. So like all everything was interconnected. Everything was about finding your combo pieces, getting yourself in a good position. And that's really kind of the secret to, to effective combo deck de uh, building. Whether you're building it within another shell or you're playing it as a redundant, well-oiled machine that just does what it does, let's see if you've got it. You've got to make sure you can get to the combo when you need it. Whether it's by, you know, being able to stretch the game out a little bit longer or apply pressure and force your opponent to take turns off. Or just having so many copies of your cards that, you know, somewhere around 38% of your hands are live without any help. Yeah, that's, that's really good. It just kills people. So, that's... That's the first step. The second step is choosing the right enablers. A really good example. For the longest time, the best enabler for Emrakul the Promised End, getting Emrakul the Promised End into play, was playing Delirium, just playing a bunch of Delirium cards. Well, then we figured out that it was easier to just play, team, you know, play Aetherworks Marvel Play Woodweaver's Puzzle Knot and make a bunch of make a bunch of energy and gain some life to stay alive. That's an enabler. It, the Puzzle Knot was the enabler of the combo, which was Marvel into Big Dumb Spell. 
you know, in modern, Past in Flames is your enabler in the Storm deck. That deck doesn't work without Past in Flames in it. If they were to ban Past in Flames tomorrow, that Storm is dead. D-E-D -D dead. Twiddle Storm, the, the enabler, the thing that makes it possible for your deck to exist is the Lotus Field, the, the land that taps for three mana, that has Hexproof. So they can't Field of Ruin it, Ghost Quarter it, whatever. They also can't Crumble to Dust it because it also has Hexproof. The fact that it has Hexproof is a big deal. Oh, excuse me. But finding the right enabler is the key. For you know, Heartbeat of Spring, you got the double mana, sure, but how are you going to get enough to kill somebody? Well, that's what Early Harvest is for. That was the enabler. Summer Bloom was the initial enabler for Amulet type. I guess you could argue Amulet of Vigor was the initial enabler because it was what made the deck exist. But, you know, Amulet of Vigor is the bad card that makes your good cards better. In that show. Summer Bloom was the card that got banned because it made the deck too consistent, too smooth, ripped through, got a bunch of extra land drops, all of it. That's, that's a whole different animal. So, how do we pick our enablers? Well, for starters, we try to make sure we find enablers that work well with the rest of our deck. And that's another good example of the Sahili Felidar Guardian combo. Sahili Rai was not a very good magic card. But when I read the card for the first time, I said, all this thing needs is something really broken to copy, and it's going to be really good. Well, we got Felidar Guardian, which was the enabler for that combo. To give you an idea of the importance of an enabler, they banned the Felidar Guardian, and Sahili Rai never did another thing to the standard format the entire time she was in it. The only reason the card was good was because of the combo. Like, Felidar Guardian was better in the, the decks that Sahili was being played in than Sahili was if you didn't play the Guardian. Because Guardian could blink your energy creatures, Guardian could blink your Oath of Nissa, Guardian could blink your Oath of Chandra, your Oath of Jace, and just keep the card advantage rolling. Sahili could do some of that by copying the creatures, but blinking them is stronger than burning too loyalty to blink to create a copy unless that copy is making it possible for you to do it infinitely and kill your opponent so that's really the trade-off we've got to look at when we're talking about these these decks it's not so much that they are obnoxiously powerful they can certainly feel like it it's not so much that they are you know pigeonholed into being fast, aggressive, and powerful, like, you know, spell-based aggro decks. They're not really that. It's that what they're doing breaks a rule of magic, and they exploit it in a meaningful way. So, all of that being said, what does it take for a combo deck to be good? Well, that depends on the context, as any deck ever in the history of magic has. The first rule of context in Magic is if there's a, not a deck that does well against what you do, you're going to have a good time. You know, a really good example is when we first got, uh, oh, what was it? One of the one of the best examples early on was the the Project X deck when it first made its debut in Standard, and it was an Abzan colored deck with. The, the combo was three cards. It was Safi Eric's Daughter, Crypt Champion, and uh, Soul Ward, which would loop together to create infinite life because the Crypt Champion would keep coming back, seeing that it didn't have red to pay for its cost, and would put a trigger on the stack to sacrifice. Well, you'd respond to that by sacrificing Safi Eric's Daughter. The Crypt Champion would come back to the battlefield. Stacking two triggers. One, to return a creature with converted cost three or less from your graveyard to play. And two, to sacrifice the, the Crypt Champion if you didn't pay red to cast it. So you would resolve the first trigger, or you would resolve the second trigger, the return a creature from your graveyard to play. 
get the Saffy back, sacrifice the Saffy so that this turn, or the next time the Crypt Champion would die, return it to the battlefield immediately after, and then you would be able to loop infinitely creatures entering the battlefield, which would allow your Soul Warden or Essence Warden to give you infinite life. It's that simple. Infinite life is a lot. And the biggest reason that deck was remotely good is because so many of the decks at the time were interested in playing a short, aggressive game or beating a short, aggressive game. Like, if you got to go off before Dragonstorm, you beat Dragonstorm. It didn't matter how many times it went off. If you got to go off before the red deck killed you, they can't kill you anymore. Neither can any of the mid-range decks. Neither can most of the control decks in that format. The only one that could would be something like Draw New Teachings, which could stretch the game out until you decked yourself. But it was much, much more, you know, for all the, the hoopla that Combo gets, it's much more about how good it is in the context of what everybody else is doing, that, you know, in the context of the format, than it is them being just so inherently powerful. Yeah, they're plenty inherently powerful, but they're only as good as the format around them is. And to that end, if the format, it, it's not just ignore, you know, finding a, a hole in the format in terms of like things that aren't being done and doing that thing, it's finding a hole in the format where people are just not playing cards to interact with that thing. You know, Is It Phoenix was really, really good in modern when nobody was playing Grave Hate. Same goes for a deck like, you know, Grixis Urza. A deck like uh, Turn 2 Dredge from Old Extended. It was powerful because nobody was playing Graveyard Hate. They were more interested in winning the Affinity matchup or trying to stretch games out long against Storm or, you know. And the, it's a big reason why these decks tend to be viable in Modern is because they're so good at attacking holes in the metagame. Better than any red deck you've ever seen. If your opponent is not playing, is not equipped correctly, they are going to lose. It doesn't matter what they're playing. And even if they're equipped correctly, if they don't play it correctly, they're going to lose. That happened to me when I played against Storm. You know, I, I had the, the first game I died on turn four. I had, felt like I had a good plan. I sideboarded, boarded into even more hand disruption and tried to speed up my clock some. But ultimately, I ripped five cards out of his hand and he still killed me. Why? I didn't get enough pressure on him and I didn't play him right. I over-sideboarded on the disruption angle and didn't sideboard enough on the clock angle and got punished. I got punished for poor deck construction. It happens. Way more often than you would think. So, when I'm thinking about what I want to do for, you know, why I want to play a given combo deck, that is forefront of my mind. Not just making sure that what I'm doing is powerful, not just making sure that I've got a good shell around it, not just making sure I've got enough enablers around it, but I got to make sure the format, you know, what other people are playing make, makes it line up well. And then what other people are not playing makes it line up well. Those are two key, key things to keep in mind when determining whether or not you want to build and play a combo deck. The last thing I'd like to bring up is, with a, with a few exceptions, combo decks do not tend to be very long-term solutions when it comes to the investment side of things. They tend to be good for a little while, and then once they are good enough to get noticed, people sideboard for them and they go away for a while. So my, my recommendation when it comes to the financial side regarding combo is to make sure you have a viable backup plan. You know, Storm's not always good. When it is good, it's really good, but it's not always good. So when it's not good, you need to be able to play something that isn't Storm so you don't get your teeth kicked in. And then you can wait until Storm's good again. But that's, you know, that's the long and short of it. You need to make sure what you're doing is powerful, breaks a fundamental rule of the game. Make sure you surround that 
interaction with the right supporting cast from a from an archetypical standpoint. It's probably not a word. Uh, but you know, here we are. You got to make sure you surround it with the correct type of enabler, the kind of thing that you know really lets you set this combo off. If you can play some redundancy in that, you need to. And then more than all of the rest of that, make sure the format is is not ready for it. Make sure, you know, if there's a really viable counterspell happy control deck and a really viable, like, discard-oriented mid-range deck, you probably don't want to play combo. But if there's not, as we are right now in standard, fair game. Sleeve up your scape shifts. Sleeve up your Wilderness Reclamations and Expansion Explosions. You know. And then also bear in mind that the more you play this deck, the more likely it is you're going to face sideboard hate. So from both a deck design standpoint, which, you know, that makes it harder to justify registering that deck for an event, and from the investment standpoint of, I really don't know if I want to spend all this, you know, whatever capital I've got to get a deck that's not routinely going to be at least reasonable. These are all things to consider when you're building and playing combo. And that's really all I have this week, everybody. Uh, I know I've rambled on forever. I, I tend to do that. I could do this for days. Love to talk. Um, but if you want to talk to me, I should probably tell you where to find me. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at HomewardPathMTG. You can find me on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain, like the country, the armada that got demolished by the English in history. Um, yeah, that one. That's a, that's a fun story for another time. Anyway, um, you can join the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. It's, it's open entry. You know, send a request. We'll give you a, me or myself or one of the admins will give your profile a once over. Make sure you don't look like a horrible person. And then we'll get the conversation rolling. And then if you're a patron of the show, you will gain access to the Patron Pathfinders Discord, where we're going to be discussing episode topics, uh, deck lists for writing in cars with cards, all of that stuff. And if you want to get in on my favorite segment every week, and you're going to have to bear with me because it's going to take a minute to get this booted up, I am turning off one road and turning on to another, and then I'm going to pull off here for a minute and go ahead and read these and do my sign-off. So... Uh, my favorite segment every week is is the one that I kind of stumbled onto by mistake. I was looking for kind of a Twitter outreach program, you know, something to get social media engagement around the show. And there was a, there was a lot of stuff I was looking at. And ultimately, what I decided to do was hashtag MTG Dad Jokes. And there were a couple of reasons for that. One, I mentioned before. I'm a father, I'm a husband, I, you know, I, I, I work, you gotta, you gotta laugh to get through the day, right? Turn off airplane mode. Oh, it is off. Okay. Turn on mobile data or, or not. Sorry, we're, we're fighting with it. Uh, when we're talking about when we're talking about all this this other the the all this heavy gravitas the the financial side of magic the 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 budget you know doing things as, as well as you can based on what you have these are all things to consider and you know being a budget magic player but also the fun things to enjoy things to laugh at so when I wanted to do a social media outreach program, it was really easy for me to figure out which one I wanted to do. I like to laugh. I like to, I like to make a good pun. Anybody that works with me knows that. So hashtag MTG dad jokes was an easy discovery on my part of something I wanted to do. <laughs> and we only have two for this week. We have one from Brian Sharp who says, what do you call the firstborn child? 
And the picture is the card, Thief of Sanity, and you are absolutely correct. And then another one from at Mythic Tales Mike says, what do you call it when a, gr a magic grinder is late to the airport for Vegas and getting their bag checked for deck boxes? Plane chase, torment. <laughs> I appreciate that more than you will ever know. Um, so thank you again for listening, everyone. I really enjoy bringing this to you on a, on a hopefully from this day forward, weekly basis. Um, if you have questions, comments, concerns, let's talk about it. Conversate. Let's get that going. And I'll catch you next week. Uh, Monday, you know, record Riding in Cars Monday. If you are a patron and you have a deck list you want to submit, send it. We'll get it in there. I'll talk about it, especially if it's spicy. And then uh, next week's Homeward Path, I'm open to suggestions on topics. All of that, all of that out of the way, I have nothing left to do but uh, turn off the ignition and we'll catch you next week.